Welcome back to Building Tomorrow, a podcast dedicated to the ways that tech, innovation, and entrepreneurship are making the world a better, freer place, or at least are responsible for more videos of politicians pretending to be regular old folk. You may be able to guess today's topic from that tease. I'll give you one more hint. It was Elizabeth Warren in the kitchen with a bottle of beer. Got it now? That's right. We're going to talk about the growing number of politicians using live feeds on Instagram, Facebook, and other social media to brand themselves as authentic to their constituents. It's a grand tech-enabled transformation of political communication happening before our very eyes, and we're going to discuss the regulatory, political, and cultural implications today. We're also going to touch on the use of social media to spread political disinformation. We're going to do a little talk about uh, the political campaign in Alabama and Roy Moore and efforts to spread disinformation against Roy Moore, as well as the use of crowdfunding to finance political campaigns. I'm joined here by my regular co-host, Will Duffield, editor of Prototype, and we are joined by special guest host, John Samples, the director of Cato Center for Representative Government and our go-to guy for campaign finance questions. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for having me. Now, to start off, uh, Will, had you seen any of these ads prior to us planning this episode? I, I've tuned into a couple dinnertime live streams. It's always good to see one of your favorite favorite congressmen, um, or or maybe presidential candidate to be. Um, just just relax, like everybody else. Crack a beer, cook a steak. Um, <laughs> but these are loaded with cultural signifiers. Mm. Um, you know, the fact that Beto was cooking a steak and, mm-hmm. and wasn't preparing himself a bowl of quinoa means something. <laughs> and in these videos, in inviting either potential donors or just voters into their homes, um, politicians attempt to create a personal relationship with these voters. It may be a mass medium of communication, but when you're invited into an otherwise intimate setting, it can help to create a sense of community and belonging and bring people who may have already been on board further on board yeah. than uh, they might otherwise. There's this great line from uh, Derek Thompson who wrote an article for The Atlantic where what you're talking about, he called it intimacy at scale, which I think is a great way of phrasing yeah. mass media but each constituent is supposed to felt like, oh, it's kind of like I was there getting that state carved up for me by Beto. And but it's also true that a lot of things we do online are direct to someone else. It's not we're aware that we're not watching television, where you're, which is from a single point out, a kind of hierarchical organization. We are many things we're aware that even if you're watching these ads, this we kind of I think the expectations are that it's a more intimate direct and personal undertaking. Now, the other thing is true, though, that uh, I guess I'm the pushback person on everything's not new. And uh, the reason we have all of those campaigns with uh, people walking around a town and greeting people or with their family, the, the television ads were like that, right? And they were trying to suggest that I'm a, a little like you, even though I may not be, right? Yeah. Well, it, the contrast with like you look at early television ads from the, the 60s, um, it's often the candidate sitting in front of a desk talking about like policy points. I'm in favor of this and here's why. Talking it, at you. Talking at you, right? And it's not this kind of, yeah, small town America and here I am with my shotgun out 
you know, shooting wild turkey. And it's a very different feel. And that predates the digital era, that shift in uh, in advertising. But you're an expert on uh, radio and, and policy and politics. Uh, wasn't the fire side chats of Roosevelt, weren't they in a way the, what makes them memorable and uh, breaking with the past is that the president was presenting himself in that way, rather like uh, your uncle or something or a patriarch sitting around in the living room speaking directly to you. Yeah. It, it, it seems strange to us now. I, we we don't view radio in quite the same way as it did to the first generation to have radio in their homes. The, the extent to which it felt uh, transformational can't really be understated. If you look back at what people were writing in their journals, what people were – how they described that experience, it might seem ludicrous to us. But they did indeed feel like Roosevelt's there with us in the room. He's speaking to me. This builds a, a, a feeling of intimacy that I think is as a medium matures, so as radio matures, eventually as television matures, it loses some of that. Uh, consumers get savvier. When it comes to these mediums, they lose that ability to uh, – in a sense, it's you're forgetting the middle man. You're forgetting the process, that this is an artificial process that is connecting you. At first, it's easy to ignore that or to, to miss that. Over time, you get savvier. And so as we have this new mass media form, which is social media, um, it's again people – are kind of it's 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 a, it's almost like a, a new experience. It's easy for them to forget that this is not a natural thing. Yes, Will. It does feel inherently democratized from the get go mm. in a way that radio and particularly the president's fireside chats, which weren't just broadcast locally because he happened to put an antenna on the White House roof, <laughs> um, but but all over the country, um, they were syndicated. Um, in in that scenario, even within the political class, he has a leg up on everyone else yeah. because he can create these intimate moments in a way that others can't. Now, you've got it from the get-go. You don't even need to be in Congress yet. You can be running for something yeah. um, or even outside of mainstream politics and nonetheless create these sorts of environments at, at will. So the, what that reminds me of is uh, a visit uh, in 2010 to the announcement for Rand Paul's Senate campaign uh, at a thing called Fancy Farm in Western Kentucky. And what struck me about it that uh, seemed very different to me was both candidates, when they would pull up in a car and then go into a trailer or something, they were mobbed by people, but they would also be mobbed by people from the opposition camp who had iPhones uh, filming them mm. because there had been a case in Virginia where a video of a, uh, a Senate Republican senator had essentially taken him down, taken him out. So they, so you, there is an authenticity to it in, in the sense that uh, every moment. Anything you say anywhere, anytime is potentially up on YouTube within uh, moments, right? And what's been striking is the shift from – I mean you, you don't have to go back that long ago and the the base wisdom was because of that, because anything can go online and destroy your career, you should be careful and guarded about what you say and do online. At some point, it's almost like we reached this – this flip where it's, well, because anything you say can go online, 
why not maximize the benefit? Yeah, there's risk there, but why not put as much of yourself, the self of you that you think that you like the most or you think has the most political benefit, put that out there first and use that to your advantage. And so that that transition's only really happened over the last couple of years. Well, and it's been tricky for many legacy political actors to gauge how to deal with that transition. I think we've seen a number of very foolish attack ads or attempts at political attacks on the basis of misjudgment surrounding this. The most well, most recently <laughs> with this sort of pseudo manufactured controversy concerning Alexandra Ocasito Cortez's dancing video from her her college years. But you can take it back to I think particularly striking in 2016, right after the election, presidential election, there was a Georgia special election in which a young man named John Ossoff was running as a Democrat and the RNC in opposing him um, cut together a video of him drinking as a college student at a Star Wars themed party and he was dressed up as Han Solo and presenting himself as such. This was meant to make him seem unserious but to me as a viewer, it just made him seem like someone I'd like to go drinking with. Yeah, right. um, yeah. So it, when you misjudge the, the impact of authenticity or, or even how it will be grasped by viewers, um, you can really do yourself in when you, you expect to get a good hit on someone. Or Ted Cruz's uh, attempt to make uh, Beto O'Rourke's uh, band days. I mean, now admittedly, it's a terrible band. If you hear any other clips of music, it was pretty bad. But again, it backfires because it's just like, oh, so Beto O'Rourke tried to play in like a garage band in college. That's kind of cool. I mean, why why is that disqualifying? Again, some of that's about audience. Ted Cruz didn't wasn't really targeting the under forty set, right? Yeah. So we haven't seen much real tension between that impulse and contemporary mob outrage politics mm -hmm, as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, maybe the closest you get to that is with Matt Gatz, a younger um, Republican congressman who Florida, right? uh, s seems to court 4chan as a constituency mm -hmm. and therefore what plays well for them will also get him raked in the mainstream media from time to time, things like bringing Chuck Johnson to the State of the Union. So let me ask a question that uh, I think we're supposed to ask uh, here at the Cato Institute, which is think about values and things like that. The understated element here is that the authenticity is a good thing, right? That uh, and that uh, you know we should follow that. But I'm wondering if you know is that correct? It may be. It's sort of like many things. It's it's sort of it's connected to the value of transparency. Ideas like that that you can know everything about everyone. But isn't it possible that a certain level of uh, if not if, we, if you say it's a certain level of being fake, it's sort of by you've lost the battle at that point, right? But maybe thinking of it as a kind of uh, part of the politician that is kept away. I mean, this may seem unfair, but Clinton, Bill Clinton seems to be the issue or seems to be a person you could talk about in this way. He might have been, given the circumstances, uh, a decent politician, all things considered, but there may be this other part of him that we, if we knew the authentic person, we would be repelled by him. Now, that's a strange thing for a libertarian to say that that might be, uh, and maybe it is, but I'm just testing the waters here. 
But you see the difference, yeah. right? It yeah. could be that – I mean I think standards like that were used really with Ted Kennedy for example. Well, there's that tension between authenticity and truth, right? The two don't necessarily overlap or even correlate. And we've seen that uh, we've seen that with with the current president, right? So we have someone who, when you ask um, a median Republican voter, "Is Trump authentic?" You get very high scores. They feel like he says what he thinks. He shoots from the hip. I do not doubt that is true. I think he does say what he thinks on Twitter. Whether or not that's a good thing, I think is is open to question. And of course, when it comes to to dissembling and, and lying, this administration is uh, is well. Yeah, that's that's it. right. So the, the the difference between being authentic and being a good politician or being a good person, right? You can be authentically bad, authentically deceptive, authentically right. That so as we fetishize the authenticity in our political rhetoric, that doesn't mean we've become more transparent. We've become more truth telling. We've gotten better at politics. And authenticity in of itself does not necessarily lead to good policy outcomes. However, beyond that, I think that when we're thinking about the value of authenticity or what a privileging of authenticity does to our political system, it can also exacerbate partisanship Mm -hmm. because whatever may make you authentically likable to your base makes you authentically loathsome to the other side. And the more that's out there, the more it can be made into grist for the rest of. I I guess a question I wanted to raise was – and I don't – I actually don't know how to continue this uh, question or how to answer it. But is – so authenticity as a value is associated above all with Rousseau. And Rousseau is at the same time the great anti-liberal, right? His thinking is in many ways a response to and is against social contract thinking, against rights thinking. It's for a bunch of things and even losing yourself in the whole, in the social whole, the general will and that being authentic, all of which suggests to me that I can't really make the connection but suggests to me that uh, we liberals – uh, and libertarians and people like that should, you know, should have some doubts about the value of authenticity. But I can't put an exact uh, thing on it. Where and it could be that maybe Rousseau was talking about authenticity for the individual, but not in the political sphere. I'm not. I'm not sure about that. And public authenticity is always a tricky business because, while on one hand it can be seen as, I suppose, a true self. It can also speak to a perception of simply well-done stage management. Um, you are authentic because you've managed yourself in all of the right ways. Well, this is actually brings us back to Rousseau in a weird sort of way, which is he had great doubts that uh, Republican life in a republic and uh, a republic dominated by actors and actresses. The letter to D'Alembert is one that states that civic virtue is incompatible with these kinds of people having uh, a strong, uh, you know, prominent role in public life. And But that is – this is the other odd thing about authenticity. We live in a world dominated by actors and actresses really mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. possibly – and, you know, it, it spread some to some degree to elected officials – um, social media might be the uh, actual way that it spreads yeah. completely in which everyone 
becomes in some sense an actor. Well, well, literally, I mean, not just metaphorically, actors and actresses, we have Donald Trump, The Apprentice, You're Fired, Ronald Reagan, a a B-list celebrity, right? I mean, um, in a certain way, reality television and social media are more similar in the incentive structures they create than uh, we might give them credit for, meaning that someone can leverage effectiveness in one realm into success in the other. Um, yeah, we're that far away from 2036 Logan Paul running for president. It's a dark horse. <laughs> I kid. That, but that just suicide wait. forest video. Great yeah, oppo. Okay. okay, maybe not. Maybe not Logan. But um, it's, it's only a matter of time before some Twitch streamer or you know someone runs for an office and, and surprises everyone down a decade or so down the line. But where, where are we going with that, Will? Well, I, I was gonna gonna bring it back to the age old libertarian question uh-huh. of. But but what does the state have to do with any yeah. of this? Should it? Yeah. How exactly does this intersect with how we attempt to at least publicly manage our political process? So this is why we brought you on, John, because there's kind of a campaign finance angle here, right? Where you have, you know, in the past, if you were a politician, you had to purchase ads frequently on television and radio saying, uh, I uh, love my wife and my children. I walk through my small town. Why don't you vote for me? Oh, and some maybe vague reference to policy. But you had to pay money to do that. And all of that is pretty tightly regulated by the FEC, right? The federal election. Spending is. Spending is. How they spend it. Well, spending is not regulated since for 40 years. The rule has been spending is not regulated. Fundraising is. Spending is on ads is disclosed. And it was also regulated in uh, other ways in that uh, it had to be disclosed uh, if it reached a certain kind of audience at a certain time period. So in that sense, it was uh, watched over very carefully. However, uh, the other side of this is, is that fairly quickly after the last major campaign finance law, the fairly quickly, been a couple of years, the uh, Federal Election Commission decided that essentially the internet was free of these uh, restrictions or limits on ads. And so you have had, as the internet has developed, you've had a uh, kind of uh, bifurcation of the political sphere in which, uh, and so now they've been talking since uh, Trump's election about it's often talked about it, of extending the same sort of uh, regulations that are in the re- so-called real world. I think I have to stop doing that actually because <laughs> right. the two get inter- are intermingled. Talking about that old MTV show? I, in real life, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, that too is another reason. Yeah. <laughs> but the, um, they're start- talking about uh, you know essentially as it were bringing the same over into the internet. But the, I have to say the internet's – that was a real uprising and if you look back now um, about 2006 when the FEC decided not to extend uh, regulations to the internet, uh, you find that you know the founder of Daily Cause was uh, – he was one of the people celebrating that decision which was a limitation on campaign finance laws. You don't get that very often, <laughs> right? right yeah. And of course the Republican Party was celebrating too. So there – as I recall that time was there was like – the reason we got that decision, and it was, by the way, a unified decision from the FEC, which is also kind of unusual. So both parties, in a sense, supported it. 
they there was an uprising and there was just no one was thinking that this was a good idea after about a week. It was kind of like cutting social security benefits or yeah. something. You might propose that, but after two days of having your head handed to you, you stop. And so you know, and it, in the sense it's taken the Russian uh events that whatever they were you to You mean Donald Trump winning? <laughs> Donald yeah the whatever however you think what happened happened it's taken a pretty big thing to overturn that and i'm still not and it's been 2 years now of trying to enact this legislation and it still isn't there so it's not i think the internet is remarkably uh, resilient against regulation of this sort uh, compared to what we've seen in the past. Now, so as libertarians, we're typically going to be suspicious of extensions of regulatory authority into new areas. Like my default when I hear people are considering treating internet regulation when it comes to election spending, campaign finance spending, uh, like they do TV or radio and my skin kind of naturally crawls. Um, now, this perhaps gets us to the disinformation question which where you've taken this, John, which is as libertarians, can we though be comfortable with saying, hmm, maybe hostile foreign actors, uh, their use of the internet to spread disinformation? Well, that is rightly the interest of the of, of national security to be concerned about that. Like, but is there some way of parsing that apart? Can we have the effective tools to limit that without you know, giving broad authority to the FEC to regulate spending on so online. So let's try uh, a way of thinking about this. Okay. Um, and then maybe it's wrong and you'll tell me if it is and we'll go off in another direction. <laughs> 1965, a what I assume was probably a college professor in California, received a copy of Peking Daily, which was a Maoist China publication. And he had to go – because of the laws of the United States, he had to go down to the post office and sign for it. He thought that uh, chilled his speech, which you can imagine it probably did. Yeah, yeah. It probably limited the number of P the Peking Review being Made sold. Made me go to the post office for anything today. It would limit <laughs> my speech. Right. <laughs> well, you wouldn't go to the post office today. Uh, but the um, – so well, that case went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled – that uh, you couldn't do that, that he did, making him sign was a bad idea, which t seemed to establish the idea, not that someone in China had a right to speak to Americans, but rather that Americans had a right to hear someone in China, mm -hmm. which tends to suggest to me that Supreme Court decision and indeed free speech theory would suggest this, uh, would be that, you know, Americans have a right to hear those Russian uh, ads and also just Russian speech in general or Swedish speech or and, – and the only thing that has changed is it's a – you don't have to go through the mails and uh, have someone bring it to you or – I guess you do but there's a lots of it. And, it, it and what I think has changed is the idea that these countries have access to Americans uh, worries people because it's divisive speech or disinformation. But the free speech theories really say, so what? We always worked on the idea. The reason we had the First Amendment and the reason we had free speech was because we thought people could work it out. We thought people could deal with this situation. 
I think there's also a sort of accident of history and path dependency in getting us to a relatively unregulated internet environment with regard to foreign speech in that during the Cold War, if you wanted to get something from abroad, it needed to come through the mails. And we had fairly well-developed systems of mail censorship, uh, particularly earlier in the, the Cold War in the 50s and 60s. Now, when the internet was coming onto the scene as a commercial force in the early 90s, we'd just won the Cold War. We were at the end of history, and we didn't really have any real rival powers around the world. So there was never an effort made to redevelop those sorts of mail censorship systems for the internet. There wasn't a perceived need for it. And as a result, 20 years down the road, we still have a relatively open internet. Well, and the irony is, is that... Um... There was an attempt to erect a certain kind of – well, it was obscenity censorship. Uh, but the, the Communications Decency Act in the 90s, the irony is, is it was intended to resurrect certain kinds of censorship control over internet activity. But most of that got struck down or um, became dead letter. And what the, the most enduring legacy of that is this little bit called Section 230, which we referenced in our last episode with uh, Will Reinhardt, which actually – gives greater protections to online speech from lawsuits and criminal liability than IRL speech, you know, newspaper. So it's kind of ironic how that – so it wasn't for lack of attempt in a sense, well, but you're right. with regard end, to foreign yeah, speech. Yeah, with regard to foreign um, speech. Well, there is another aspect of foreign speech that I didn't men mention because that – and it explains the whole Mueller investigation and so – and the Russian – why the Russian element has, uh, I think, more legs than you might expect, which is that it is in fact illegal for foreign nationals to spend money on campaigns. Now, what that – in practice, it's somewhat unclear, but it for sure means that a foreign national cannot buy an ad. Mm -hmm. Now, the, and it's all tied up with ads in the past in the sense of the, the doctrines and of law and doctrines of the court, which is that uh, ads in a way – both contributions and ads are not direct speech, even though both of them end up being speech. Uh, but both seem to have a little less in the way – certainly contributions have less uh, protection than direct speech. And the same is true of ads, even though ads are – I mean what's the point of an ad is it's about speech. Mm. So but I, the final thing I would say is it's not at all clear though that a, you know, a Russian or a foreign speaker could not spend money on just general discussion of the issues, mm. right? Um, I think what we are in a situation that is what we have a new kind of media. We have technological change. The technological change is rapid, seems rapid and is not well understood. Its implications are not well understood. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty about many things in foreign policy and so the people are thinking, well, the Russians could do anything, right, or something like that. Um, the other thing that strikes me about all of this is, that I think is – and it's about the ads too is we sort of look at Russians and say, look, they're trying to undermine the country and so on and so forth. It's real harms associated with this. What in, frequently in these cases, what gets completely missed is having foreign nationals speak, having foreign nationals have ads and those kinds of things in this context 
has value too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, as libertarians, we would recognize it. It would be, I think, it would be great if we had some people, and they can do it now. Is you know, can make clear the consequences of protectionism in the United States, yeah. Yeah. right? Or maybe make clear the problem, the vaunted wall, or the sort of non-liberal immigration policies. These kinds of core libertarian ideas. We would like foreigners to speak about them, yes, right? Especially when the alternative to messaging through speech is often on the uh, the protectionism question, messaging through tariffs that hurt exactly. Americans and take exactly. their jobs away. Exactly. We'd like to know about that beforehand. And, so, and, yeah, and I'll note, uh, I, mean, I think your um, answer here is quite apt for what I know from uh, radio history in the 1920s and 30s. There was a lot of concern. I think this is true at the outset of any kind of new mass media form, whether radio, television, or uh, social media. There's often hyperbolic concerns about the outsized influence that new media has and the assumption it will continue to have this kind of um, brainwashing ability. So in the early days of radio, there was concern that, oh, no, there are these uh, radical anti-Semitic, anti-New Deal voices, people like Father Charles Coughlin, who are um, swaying gullible listeners. They're under their spell. There's almost a magical component to this. And they can't think for themselves. They're being swayed. Therefore, we should basically use government power. Um, in Coughlin's case, it wasn't – it was the Catholic Church. But uh, there were attempts to push some of these voices off the radio by governmental pressure on the big radio networks. But here's the thing, and, and there are all kinds of unintended ill consequences from a libertarian perspective, that kind of heavy-handed response, is that people wise up, right? At, at first, sure, um, the first time the Russians run a disinformation campaign in 2016, yeah, there are some folks, you know, you all know the ones on Facebook who are most likely to share credulous-looking ads that were financed by a, you know, a Russian troll farm, right? They're, you know, uncle so-and-so – you know, older uh, boomers who are not quite as internet savy. No offense, John. I, I'm not. I, I don't have you in it's, mind it's here. So really, it's very interesting that you would say that, though. But one of the findings of people who have looked at this mm-hmm. is that it's amazing how small the number of people who uh, resend ads, mm-hmm. and they do tend to be older people. Yeah. In the 2016 election. Because they're not – and I think what it is, it's not about age versus youth per se. What it is, it's about who is, is – has more fluency in a media form, who is in a sense a, a native. In these days, we'd say a digital native. Um, and that comes across in all, all these different ways. So whether it's why is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez – why does she feel more authentic on Instagram? It's because she's been using it most of her adult life. Elizabeth Warren seems artificial well, because she's only just trying to do it as a pale imitation of something she's not as fluent in. Because and she's, right. somehow at the other end of the spectrum, John Dingle is great on Twitter. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. Well, and Trump How did that uh, has a lot of followers on Twitter. It's been very – it's worked for him, right? So um, it's no guarantee. But maybe we should push this. Um, so we've talked about Russian disinformation. But that's, I think, in the future, a relatively small part of the disinformation question. A bigger part is going to be us doing it to ourselves. Uh, and Will, I was going to ask you, you shared a, an article with us about uh, what happened in Alabama uh, with the Roy Moore campaign disinformation. Yeah, so there have been – there were um, a couple attempts during that special election to run 
Russian style in a sense um, or that's what it's called. But efforts to keep Republican voters home and divide them. There is one group that posed as a pro-prohibitionist group. <laughs> yeah. um, dry Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> and then the aim was to split evangelicals in dry counties away from pro-business wet county Republicans. Um, in another effort, um, a group followed Roy Moore with faux Russian bots in order to then seed stories that he was the favored candidate of the Russian. So fake progressive bots imitating fake Russian bots imitating actual – this is – wow. We're yes. <laughs> and, and this exists in a universe in which we're also attempting to – or there are proposals. We'll see whether any of them get passed to regulate how bots and particularly foreign bots are used. Now, legislation always lags behind implementation, how people are making use of these technologies in the real world, such that were either the Honest Ads Act or perhaps uh, one of these bot disclosure bills to go through, I think it's quite likely that its first victims would be domestic actors confused for foreign actors. So, John, is this currently – I mean, so there's legislation being proposed, but is – what we're describing here, you know, a, a fake prohibition group meant to, you know, funded and created by progressive activists meant to confuse and divide, you know, posing as conservative Republicans and meant to divide Republican voters in Alabama. Is that currently legal? Would it be legal if it wasn't online? Or is this just like digital swift boating? Like, I think uh, the issue, there's probably a difference between online and not online. That if you're in uh, not online, probably you in, could find yourself pretty quickly involved in disclosure problems because you have to be – you really – the disclosure, you can't fake that. Uh, and indeed, you know, this part of the response, we thing we haven't mentioned here is a lot of the response to this has been private. It hasn't been public. And actually, the Facebook response to this is most of these things get stopped because they're fake accounts and they – take down millions of fake accounts every day. So that's part of the story. I think the whole issue though is the sort of issue – there's disinformation, there's misinformation, et cetera. Can we make any distinction that could hold up between false speech and whether false speech should – can be made illegal in the United States? And my inclination would be to say it cannot be. Well, seemingly not under Alvarez. Um, in thinking about how private action ameliorates some of these expected harms, um, there's been real concern with social media advertising that because ads can be micro-targeted and modified essentially in real time, then campaigns can target specific population with certain sorts of messages that then they won't show to others and they can hide some of their, their beliefs or proposals only showing them to their base. Now, we Facebook has an ad archive that they've rolled out uh, last year which allows anyone to go on and see 
every ad that a given campaign mm -hmm. has run, mm -hmm. even those that haven't been targeted to you. You can even use certain targeting criteria to look through it. So, <laughs> okay, I as a young person am, get, am getting this, but what are they saying to the older folks about social security? Yeah, yeah. I can see that and it's because Facebook has given me the option to do so. Uh, it struck me though that I recalled from the 2004 campaign, uh, the President Bush at the time, uh, even then, uh, and I say even, but it was probably also well along the path at that point, being for the president to be directly against uh, same-sex marriage was becoming increasingly a problem. So they, uh, they addressed two audiences in different ways. One was that there was a group of ministers and you know people who were against same-sex marriage. And they told them, look, you can speak out about this. You can say the president is on your side if he's elected and so on. But he's not going to talk about it because the it, there was an alienation problem of some voters. So they distinguished the two. Now, it's certainly true that you can do much more of that uh, um, with the internet. I mean, I think that's the thing that can, it's the lack of understanding. Uh, we don't know where this is going. The technology seems so incredibly adaptable and uh, so data driven that uh, a lot of people, I think, are worried about uh, the possibilities. We had uh, John Aristotle Phillips, uh, of, he has a campaign platform called Aristotle, uh, where they do that micro targeting. He came on the show and you, have, you can target. Someone who is well, the old. I mean, the old categories, the bigger categories from the '90s were like soccer mom, but these days it's yes, mom who of of three children or more who drives a minivan who lives within uh, you know uh, five miles of this exact you know congressional district who has an income between thirty eight thousand thirty nine thousand dollars who tends the. I mean, you can get this you know micro micro targeting. Of of constituents to, because of big data, you don't big data, and you don't need an actual human being to do that parsing for you anymore. Mm -hmm. But does it make any difference? I mean, in the sense yeah. of the the general rule is on campaign ads that political scientists have come mm -hmm. up with mm -hmm. is that you can have some effects. Negative ads uh, are often make people more likely to turn out. They have been shown in the past to increase the knowledge of people who were running against uh, incumbents, that is, challengers. Uh, but generally, particularly in presidential elections, the rule is that you have to have a lot of them and, in the, and the actual effects are quite limited, which is why political scientists said at the time of the Russian revelations, and I think they told Mark Zuckerberg this, and he said it's crazy to think that it had an effect on the outcome, uh, which I, he re later regretted that. But still, I think that would be something that a political scientist would say because there was a small amount of spending and pretty sure at that time. And the um, the other thing was it was saying things that they were saying things that were very similar to what Americans were saying. So uh, I guess the argument has to be that the micro-targeting and the data and everything means that these ads and ones accessible to foreign nations are going to be much more effective than in, they were in the old media. And we have to say, I think, that that's possible because we don't know. It's possible though those – the most loudly concerned about micro-targeting and social media in general – are also those with an incentive to be. 
if you look at how legacy media, which has had both its general readership and political ad revenue, uh, hurt the most by this new social media, um, they're the ones most loudly clamoring um, to limit it somehow, to play up its ill effects. Uh, and it also – it can provide a valuable narrative MacGuffin as it were. Yeah, um, I was watching a BBC Channel 4 film about the Brexit vote in which rather than really getting into perhaps failed past policies that alienated voters from Europe, they were able to turn to this secretive micro-targeting operation in order to present a narrative of how Brexit – inexplicably occurred. Well, it allows you to frame Brexit as actually anti-democratic because it was all ginned up by this shadowy yes. cabal. And here with America. Trump, you know, yeah. when when Obama was running micro-targeting operations that drew friends of friends data on Facebook, the folks who did it for him were hailed as heroes. It's only when Trump gets in on the yeah. back of that sort of thing that it becomes bad. So it's politically it's it's a politically useful narrative. Um, and I mean, I think what you you noted earlier, Will, is a good point, which is that as long as it's uh, you know AOC or Beto, um, it, it's people that. You know, progressive campaign finance activists like are doing it. It doesn't. They don't seem to have a problem with it as much. But if it's Matt Getz or Donald Trump himself, or you know, a new generation, eventually there'll be a generation of just as social media savvy um, Republican and conservative politicians that might change, right? Like, well, I think on both sides, uh, judging from my experience, uh, is that. Both sides have deep fears about the American people, right? For going back to the 1970s, I can recall people who had a, a on the left who had fears that uh, they were outnumbered, and that uh, and you and you go back to the text, right? If you think about 1955, and uh, you begin to get. Uh, uh, this idea that social science shows that there's an incipient fascism in the American worker and those kinds of arguments. There's a literature like that, right? So there's an expectation that this kind of speech by people like Donald Trump or foreign uh, helpers could really put us over the edge. And then I think on the other side, on the right, there's a fear too that actually – you know, the American people could actually go for some kind of uh, left uh, strategy uh, or something like that, uh, left-wing politics, left-wing economics. So the, again, the uncertainty in the particular situation we're in is I think a lot of the reason. But this is – we've been here before and television was, you know – the problem is government responded to television in 1969 by essentially banning all spending on broadcast um, above a certain level, right? Uh, I My concern would be it's taken a while for the internet to mature as a political matter, but my concern would be that the people in government would want to go in a, well beyond the Honest Ads Act and uh, be a, an attempt to try to deal with their fears by uh, government action in an area where this is really – I mean there's things that cut against this. One is that this is the medium that is now really coming uh, to a head of the 
vaunted small donors. It's made, it's empowered small donors. It makes it easy through PayPal or whatever to simply give 10 or $20 to somebody. And it's a viable uh, way of raising money in a way that small donors never have been before. I think, uh, John, you've brought us uh, to uh, kind of crowdfunding in the digital era, um, whether it's Patreon, which isn't quite tweaked for political uses, but there are kind of political versions of Patreon, like Act oh, Blue yeah. or CrowdPack, uh, that are very effective or um, at um, taking enough small donors uh, and cheaply processing their money and generating reports for FEC compliance that actually makes a small donor-focused campaign finance strategy viable. I mean, you can actually run a campaign off of that money in the with and not take big pack money or corporate money in the way that was much harder to do a decade or, or so. You're ago. also looking at small donors nationally. It's not yeah. just small donors within your district, mm-hmm. but um the sorts of small donors who may have tuned in to watch you cook a steak the night before mm-hmm. from across mm-hmm. the country, feel empowered by what you're talking about, and yeah, give you twenty, thirty bucks. Let me give you an example of how this all could change. Uh, I have a friend who is knows a lot about electoral politics and a donor came to him before the last election and said, look, I want to stop Donald Trump, but I don't know who to give the money to. Now, this was a this guy had lots of money. So my friend sort of looked around at the various races and advised him about where to get it. But that was a real elite undertaking, mm-hmm. right? So let's say you're a guy, you know, sort of sitting at a desk and you don't like Donald Trump or you don't like Elizabeth Warren or whomever. Um, the internet makes it easier to find out information about these candidates mm-hmm. that, than you would otherwise. And you can get involved in the Georgia race for a hundred bucks or fifty bucks or whatever or the Texas race. Uh, and you don't have to be. It sort of levels the playing field in some measure. You don't have to have my friend with all of his experience and your hundreds of thousands of dollars. You can be involved. And a lot of folks on the right are concerned about these crowd crowdfunding efforts so far because they do skew blue. So like Act Blue, it's that it's in the title for a reason. These are uh, progressives have done a much better job at using crowdfunding as a source of political small donations. Um, eventually, though, you'd expect that to even out. It's a you know it's an arms race, and eventually you'd expect Republicans, conservatives to catch up. Um, but one thing that I think uh, it's not on a lot of people's minds in regards to this is that this is a further impulse, a further uh, push um, away from kind of effective modern party control of the political process. So we've already seen this uh, in the Republican Party, which is the unintended consequences of new forms of mass media dissolving party establishment control. Partly it's a story about cable news. I mean, Fox News arguably has more power over the selection process of presidential nominees for the Republican Party as the Republican yeah, Party, is that a decentralization or just a transfer? <laughs> well, yeah, whether it's a decentralization or not, it took everyone by surprise. If Fox News wants to have four additional presidential debates, they're going to get it, regardless of what the party wants. Now, the Democratic Party, up until this point, has had less um, dissolution of party control of the process. Um, but you're, where do you start to see that? You started to see it with Bernie Sanders in 2016. They, the party, the Democratic Party establishment was not a big fan of them running. How does the party establishment usually prevent challengers like that who are not, you know, uh, they don't want to run against the accepted um, establishment nominee? Well, you can use 
the donor pool. So traditionally, what you would do is you'd 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 go to all the big wig donors to to your political party and say, okay, let's all kind of agree. We want to select someone quickly with a minimum of fuss. We don't want our primary candidates to beat each other up too much. So let's all agree to not donate to X candidates who are not realistic general election candidates. But that becomes harder to do in the era of crowdfunding. And the number one politician on Act Blue is Bernie Sanders, who, right, like he, he still loses in 2016. But that would have been unthinkable uh, in a previous generation. So let me pose a, to me, interesting, difficult question. What you're talking about is a kind of filter. Mm. The parties acted as a kind of filter on the, and that was that actually had a the invisible primary was the, was run by donors and opinion makers and party leaders, uh, and that's Hillary Clinton possibly was the last successful candidate who won the invisible primary quite early. As libertarians, and this I will pose this for our listeners too, do you think we're better off? for a policy and political perspective with the invisible primary or without it? That's a really interesting question. I think first we have to set aside the short-term implications. So um, weaker major political parties um, creates political chaos and you can kind of see some of that going on right now. Trump would not win an invisible primary. He wins because of the dissolution of the party modern party system on the Republican side. Um, so but if you set aside the short-term partisan considerations, I think on a medium term or long term, if, if you support a radical party, a, the Libertarian Party itself, or even if you're a member of I don't know, the DSA or some other, any kind of third or radical um, party member should actually see this as a moment of opportunity. It's the the dissolution of major party control provides opportunities for you know uh, less heterodox candidates from third parties to have more of a voice. So like Bernie Sanders back in the day, arguably you can, you can make a pretty good case. He's not really a, a, a Democrat, right? He's a he's an independent. So he's a Democratic Socialist. In previous generations, he would have had to run. He would have been a third-party nominee of the D of, of the DSA or some you know Trotsky group or, or whatnot, and he would have had very little exposure to the and very little input into kind of the political rhetorical mainstream. But because of again this little bit you know, the, the the crowdfunding ability of of things like Act Blue, he's able to break into the mainstream rhetorical discourse and have an outsized influence. I mean, it's you can make a pretty good argument that because of Bernie Sanders, it has now become the median Democratic position to support, um, uh, you know, single-payer health insurance for everyone. That's not – I mean, before not, Bernie, that's not – It's not a libertarian position. I guess the systematic question I would ask is this. Do you believe that those elites we're talking about, that filtering group, whatever you call it, parties or whatever it is, this the hated Washington elites, do you believe on average going down through history, they are a lot more going to be more libertarian, more liberal, more limited government than the people who are filtered? That's a tough question. Hey, you got to pick your issue there <laughs> almost. I mean I can point to taxes well, for instance and think that one of the, they might want to keep my taxes down. But you look to war and defense spending and it may be very different there. The, the reason I say that is I sort of grew up on this uh, – some 
political science, which was the idea that if you look at why do we have free speech? Why do we have freedom of religion? Why do we have all these things? And the answer that this textbook gave that was so surprising to generations of of political science students was, we have it because the elites are much more liberal, much more libertarian, much more protective of these rights than the average voter. If you had, if you don't have the filter, you'll end up with illiberalism, right? And Bernie, you know, suggests that, but it's not just Bernie on, and it's not just Democrats. It's, I think this is an open question. We've, we've overdone, the elites have failed in some profound way in America. Uh, obviously, right? They're in bad, uh, bad ill repute, but it's not clear that they deserve that, even from a libertarian point of view. If you're just making choices from uh, what really the possibilities are. Well, so the way I, I would put it, we did an episode on um, alternative voting systems using Maine's uh, first congressional district use of ranked choice voting mm-hmm. uh, as an illustration, as a launching point, is that I, I don't think the dissolution of the – or not the dis- – the weakening of the bonds of the modern party systems of Republicans and Democrats is enough. But if you combine that with some kind of electoral or voting reform, it can actually make a huge difference. I mean I never thought it would be possible uh, for – so – well, that, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> go, go listen to that episode, dear listener, about about ranked choice voting. Um, the, the way I'd put it is, is that it's a moment of possibility. What who takes advantage of that possibility is open is open. It's it's uncertain, right? This is all contingent. So yes, Bernie Sanders tried to take advantage of it and arguably shifted the political conversation. Did a better job taking advantage of it than our radical libertarian option that was offered who was supposed to be uh was supposed to be johnson and and uh you know radical <laughs> back in back in 2015 everyone was talking about this being a libertarian moment this is the moment of possibility is open radicals of any stripe have a shot but they, the other, they did a better job in part i would argue because of this use of of you know the the other issue is uh single uh a dis, you know, single member district first past the post, which is generally assumed to produce a two party system. So that the problems of the, the libertarian party's problems are endogenous, because you, once you're in a two party system, everyone knows you're in a two party right. system. So all the libertarian talent has gone into that system. That would be a much better candidate than uh, he was. In fact, he was libertarian talent that didn't go in. That was in the system and then went outside of it and should have been much better than he was. Yeah. But I mean, so but you can imagine an alternate universe in which, for whatever reason, uh, uh, tech did not have a kind of a progressive political bent at this moment, mm-hmm. and so that progressive causes and candidates didn't have this advantage in terms of the use of social media, in terms of online crowdfunding, and instead that energy in this moment of disruption of ma- major party realignment, the, the fifth or sixth major party realignment in American history, it instead could have been a libertarian moment. But that we were not, I mean, for, again, a variety of reasons in this historic moment, we weren't ready for that. So that, and I mean, I, I, but I think we can actually be encouraged, even if we don't like someone like Bernie Sanders' politics, the fact that a radical was able to have influence on the political mainstream to a remarkable extent should be inspiring to libertarians. 
that could have been us. It wasn't. It could still be us in the future. Um, and that's possible precisely because we have the, the bonds of the, of the modern party system have frayed. I guess what I would I, – I, I take your point uh, and it's an interesting point. Uh, what I would add to it is though my concern was is we're going through a uh, regime change where the New Deal and the Great Society, those institutions are kind of wearing out, which could be a good thing. But it also could be that we're headed into an era of populism. And for yep. me, populism is, is you know, and William Riker and all that stuff out of political science. Yep. It's populism and liberalism are two different things yep. and you really don't want populism. Well, we'll have to we'll have to do a follow up episode here. Where we dig into that a little bit more. That'd but, be great. But John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. Will a pleasure as always, and until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.